somewhere between waking and sleeping. On our journey towards the unfathomable deep, there comes a thin moment where we have one foot in the waking world and the other is in that other world where we relinquish conscious control. Pausing here, and straddled between two planets that drive one another like gears, the attentive traveller will notice a narrow door, only wide enough to sidle through. This is the border of sleep, where imagination and reality are braided together, a chasm in the crust of consciousness venting the hot pumice of imagery into the irresistible magma of narrative. Welcome to episode 25 of Stories from the Borders of Sleep, a weekly podcast of curious tales from bordersofsleep.com featuring original stories by your host Seymour Jacklin. Visit bordersofsleep.com for more information or to leave some feedback and we do love to hear feedback. Artwork is by Robin Trainer, production by Tim Wiles and the soundtrack for this week's episode is from the album Water and Sky by Kurosh Dini and that's available from magnitude.com. So, if you're ready to journey with me, then I shall begin. The Wisdom of Things Found by Seymour Jacklin The sky was a diffuse, unbroken grey, like an ethereal reflection of the sea, and close, like the ceiling of some vast cave. It was windless and mild on the beach, and the sand was as soft as a carpet. It was one of those days when the outdoors felt somehow indoors, and Elijah smiled to himself because, even though he slept in a fisherman's shack with wooden walls and roof, he always considered the great outdoors to be the house where he lived. He looked out over the ocean through a few white wisps of hair that he had failed to gather into his ponytail. There were whales out there today, two of them, with their backs almost indistinguishable from the folds of the waves, but giving themselves away when they blew out and dived. He turned south and trod carefully along the high tide mark that the sea had sketched with strokes of brown seaweed and old rope. He watched where he put his feet, They were like two smooth gnarls of driftwood, for he had not worn shoes for forty years, but they were still susceptible to sharp pieces of rubbish that found their way up the beach. He read the watermark like the lines on a page, and this beach was the only book he'd bothered to read for almost as long as he'd forsaken shoes. It told him more than any book ever had. Every day the tide bore in a report and left it there for him the state of the ocean, the seasons on the seabed, for, yes, there are seasons in the depths, the activities of humanity, the weather, all these things were codified and printed by the retreating tide. About half a mile along the beach, he could see the dark blotches of a couple of larger objects stuck in the sand, but he didn't hurry towards them. It wasn't always the biggest things that spoke to him, Yesterday, a cuttlefish shell that had borne some random scratches, by chance forming the letters A and O, had told him that the vastness of eternity could announce itself on the bones of a fish, or anywhere else one might look for it. It was the little things that held all the secrets, 
This he had learnt in forty years of beachcombing. His sharp eyes kept upon the mark, just a few feet in front of him. He passed over the quadrupedal brown pockets of seaweed they called shark's eggs, and the ragged flags of kelp and dulse. He didn't stop for the red and blue tails of worn rope, or for seagull feathers, or for mussel shells of which he'd seen enough to fill his hut four times over. In fact, he'd probably eaten enough mussels to have the path from his hut to the beach paved with their shells. For the only food he ever ate was gathered from the rocks and dunes, or from a few pots that he cultivated on the veranda that surrounded his home. In time, he came up to one of the larger things that he'd seen from afar. Jutting out from the sand was a dark, worn fragment of plank no wider than his hand and no longer than his forearm. The weather had etched around the rings in the timber, picking out the pattern of a teardrop in relief. There was the back of a bolt rusted onto one side, and when he pulled it out of the sand and turned it over, there was the weathered ring of a handle attached to it. It must have been the front of a drawer on a yacht, long since resting on the seabed, but it reminded him of a tiny door. He was pleased with this. He could now see what the next item was. Another fifty yards ahead of him, the edge of an old plastic crate poked out from the sand. He had to do a little digging to free it. It was of the sort that was used to carry and stack bottles, dark green, fully intact, and it had the letters WM embossed on the side. It would be useful for, well, storing bottles. He turned for home, carrying his treasure. It had been a good morning. Elijah's shack was neat and tidy, and clean like a ship's galley. In the single room he had a bed, a table, a wood stove, and a couple of old crates to sit on. But the walls were lined with shelves and hooks that bore the returns of many tides, rope and boys and nets and lobster pots and bottles and jars of shells, all sorts of fabrics and assorted pieces of plastic and metal and wood whose origin or purpose was not obvious. It didn't have the chaos of a junkyard, however, but the curated air of a museum. Elijah placed the two new finds on the table and went over to the stove to light it and feed it from a pile of sea-seasoned wood in the corner. Then, taking a pad of paper and a well-chewed ballpoint pen, he sat down at the table, staring at the new arrivals and waiting for them to speak to him. He heard the sound of a car outside. Visitors? Footsteps. Voices he didn't recognise. Two pairs of feet up the steps and onto the veranda. He opened the door to greet them. It was Klaus, the owner of the hotel just down the coast, in his customary shorts with socks and sandals, and there was a young man with him, in jeans and a thick fisherman's jumper, with neatly side-parted red-brown hair and a splattering of freckles on his pale face. "'I have brought someone to see you, Bob,' said Klaus. The locals called him Bob, since none of them knew that he was rarely Elijah. The young man, who didn't seem to know quite what to do with his hands, offered a smile and said, "'I am Ellis. I've come to say thank you.' "'Come in,' said Elijah kindly. 
standing back and gesturing them into the room. He seated them at the table and went to the stove, filling an old tin with water from a two-litre plastic bottle and setting it to boil. He asked Klaus how business was going. Yeah, we are making a living, said the German hotelier, from what the ocean brings to us. Little bit like you. He chuckled. Elijah smiled and looked out of the window towards the ocean. We're not so different from those whales out there, feeding on whatever drifts into their mouths, he commented, taking the lid off another tin and shaking a fistful of grounds into the heating water. Whales? exclaimed Ellis, and came over to the window, and Elijah pointed out the grey backs of the whales which were still rolling beyond the breakers. They made small talk until the water boiled, and Elijah poured the gritty black cowboy coffee into three mugs and brought them over to the table. Only then did he turn to the younger man and say, I should be thanking you for coming to visit me. Ellis seemed to be searching for words for a few seconds, and then handed Elijah a folded piece of paper. I think this is yours, he said. Elijah recognised it almost identical to hundreds of others he'd written on and cast out to sea in bottles on the retreating tide from the head of the bay where the current whipped round and carried them out. He unfolded it. It simply said in his own handwriting, What instrument plays silence? He nodded distantly and placed the piece of paper on the table, smoothing it with his hands. I remember this one, he said. Ellis opened his mouth to speak, but again couldn't seem to find the words, but his eyes were beaming at the older man. Elijah simply put a finger over his lips and pointed to the paper to indicate that silence was in order. He went to the wall of his hut and took down a golden piece of wood with distressed edges, but with a few patches of varnish remaining on its face, and the distinctive, perfect circle of the sound hole of a guitar cut out of it. He handed it to Ellis, who, holding it reverently, let his hands explore its smoothness for a few moments before looking questioningly back at him. Don't thank me. Thank that, Elijah said. I simply listened to what it said and passed the message on. Ellis's face tightened with the effort of trying to understand and then suddenly relaxed as the light broke. Did all these things speak to you, he asked, pointing with his chin at the walls of the hut. And to you, said Elijah, but you tell me what instrument plays silence. Ellis's tongue was suddenly loosened and he poured it out. I always wished that I would find a message in a bottle. I found so many bottles on beaches and riverbanks but never a message in them. I gave up looking, but on the day that I found this, I was fifty miles down the coast and I was lost, you see. Well, not literally. I knew where I was, but in life, I I just heard the news that I'd failed a second audition for music college. It was the end of the road as far as I was concerned. I'd never looked beyond that, and I'd never expected failure. And then I got your message, and it changed everything. It made everything all right somehow. In just one day, I finally found a bottle with a message in it, and I found silence. 
more perfect than every chord I'd struck until that day. I went back to my piano, and I just sat there, and I played nothing, not a note, for all the hours I would normally practice, and then the next day, too, and for weeks just listening, until I heard that silence is as rich and varied as noise and something else began to happen. When I eventually struck a few notes, I heard things between them, and there was something there where before I thought there was nothing, an absence, and I... Well, I... It's just made all the difference. And I've been looking everywhere to find who put the message in the bottle. He paused for breath. Elijah put his arms around the young man and held him for a few moments and then sat down. Perhaps you can help me then, he said, pointing to the fruit of his morning's beach combing. I wonder what this is saying to you. Ellis looked earnestly at the two items on the table, eventually concentrating his gaze on the little piece of wood that looked like a door. The other two men sipped their coffee while the silence swirled about them melodically. Eventually, Ellis spoke. I get the feeling, he said, that without a wall, a door makes no sense. It's walls that create the need for doors, but where there are no walls, there are no doors. Hmm, good, said Elijah. Ellis continued. I think we look for doors sometimes when in fact they're not even any walls. Write the message down and we'll go and send it out this very hour before the tide turns, said Elijah, pushing the pen and paper towards him. I have some empty bottles in my car, said Klaus. Elijah took the newfound crate off the table and went out to the car with Klaus to get the bottles, while Ellis carefully inscribed a message on a piece of paper. Don't look for doors where there are no walls. <laughs> 